0: This morning I'm continuing in my sermon series through First Thessalonians, a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church that he had begun around the year 49 AD. He got kicked out by a mob of angry Jews who were upset that he was teaching that Jesus is Lord, uh, and he, he, despite his attempts to get back, he could not get back until they finally sent Timothy, one of their co-workers, back, and he brings back to Paul a report about how the church is doing, and in response to that report, Paul sends this letter to the church in Thessalonica, And in the first section, he reminds them of his love for them. He reminds them of the gospel. And then he moves on to chapter 4 to address some of the concerns that he's heard that are happening in the church. We talked about sex. We talked about work. And now we're talking about death. Last week, we looked at uh, Jesus' second coming, the Christian hope, where our loved ones go when they die. And then this week, we're going to talk more about the final judgment that day that we stand before the Lord. So I'm going to read 1 Thessalonians 4.13 to 5.11, and we're going to focus on the second half of this passage this morning. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. This is God's word. Let me pray before we continue. Lord, we ask that you would help us to set aside any distractions in this time, to focus on your word and your spirit, to hear directly from you what it is that you want us to hear. Help us to consider our lives in the light of these words. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the beginning of this chapter, he references what he calls the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is a phrase that shows up throughout the Bible in reference to judgment day. The day when God will judge the earth, when we will all stand before the Lord to account for our lives. Hebrews nine twenty seven to 28 says, Just as man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So once again, this is clearly saying, one day you will stand before God, and he will judge you based on how you have lived. Now, judgment is not a terribly popular topic, Certainly, even in churches, many churches would rather talk about how to improve your marriage or increase your bank account, or maybe let's just focus on social justice issues. But you can't read the Bible without seeing references to judgment and the day of the Lord. And so let's spend some time this morning understanding it. After all, when you were in school, those of you who once went to school, remember when you had a test coming up? What was the question you wanted to know? What's going to be on the test, right? What's going to be on the test so I don't waste my time studying the things that I don't need to study? One day you will stand before the Lord and there will be your final exam. So I'd like to help you understand what's going to be on that exam so you don't waste your life on things that don't matter. So there's, the way I'm going to approach this this morning is I'm going to expose four misconceptions about judgment that I think there are to help us understand judgment day and what we could expect on that day. So the first misconception is that judgment is a bad thing. Again, when people hear judgment and the day of the Lord, most people, I think, see it as a a terrible bad thing. But when you read through the Bible, it's not a bad thing at all. It's something to be celebrated. We read this psalm at the beginning of the service. This is just part of it. Psalm 98, four through nine. Shout for joy to the Lord. All the earth burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord. Why? For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. I don't know if you caught that when we read it as an opener this morning. Look, all these verses about singing and praising and clapping your hands and playing musical instruments. It's a celebration. Why? Because the Lord is coming to judge the earth. Hmm. Hmm. It doesn't seem to fit together as far as we're concerned. What are we missing about the day of judgment? And why is that a cause for celebration as far as the Jews were concerned? Listen to N.T. Wright in his book, Surprised by Hope. He said it this way there will be a judgment where God will set the world right once and for all. For most people, judgment is a good thing. In a world of systematic injustice, bullying, violence, arrogance, and oppression, the thought that there might come a day when the wicked are firmly put in their place and the poor and weak are given their due is the best news that there can be. Faced with a world in rebellion, a world full of exploitation and wickedness, a good God must be a God of judgment. Does that make sense? So as we sit here in our comfortable suburban American town, we hear judgment and we say, ooh, I don't know, I don't like all this talk of a God of judgment, a God of wrath. But as N.T. Wright puts it, for a lot of people around the world who live in places of oppression and places of poverty and places of violence, the idea of a God of justice is a thing to be celebrated that one day he will put the wicked in their place and he will lift up the poor and the oppressed. And it's good news that the one who will be doing the judgment is none other than Jesus, right? It is Jesus, the one who loved us so much that he gave his life for us. In John 5, he says, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but he has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son... Does not honor the Father who sent him. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, and he will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. So Jesus will be the judge, the one who loved us so much that he gave his life for us. And this, he says, is good news, that he died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you're doing. So that's the first misconception, is that judgment is a bad thing. Only if you live in a quiet suburban house, probably, where you feel like there's nothing bad in the world. But those who are full aware of the evil of this world, judgment is a good thing, that God will one day put the world right. The second misconception is very much related to that one, that believing in a judging God will cause his followers to be judgmental people. Some might argue that, well, if you believe that God is a judgmental, wrathful God, then Therefore, as his followers, you're going to be a judgmental person. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. One of the best treatments of this was Miroslav Volf, who was a Yale theologian, a Croatian. He went through the violence in the Balkans. He wrote a book called Exclusion and Embrace. And he wrote this. He said, very similar to what N.T. Wright had said, he said, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. The only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves is to insist that violence is legitimate only when it comes from God. My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many in the West. But it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence results from the belief in God's refusal to judge. In a sun-scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die with other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. If you couldn't catch what he was saying there, he's saying that his understanding is that if you are going to lay down your guns and your swords and not go kill the people who killed your friends and raped your women and all of that, this is the only way to stop from the cycle of violence is to believe that there is a God, a God of justice, who will set things right in the end. Who will punish evildoers? says if you don't believe that there's a God, or if you don't believe that there's a God of justice, then what is going to stop you from going and taking your revenge on those who have harmed you and the ones you love? Because if you're not going to do it, then who else is going to do it? But he says, nonviolence should result from a belief in a God of justice. It's a common theme in Paul's writings. Consider Romans chapter 12, 17 to 21. He says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. I think that's an expression that's saying you'll bring shame on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Clearly what Paul is saying here is that God is a God of justice. God is a God of wrath towards evil and evildoers. And your job is not to take revenge. Your job is to love even your enemies as Jesus loved his enemies. So that belief that believing in a judgmental God, a judging God, will cause his followers to be judgmental is wrong. It should lead us to be loving because we trust that God will take care of it. So now let's get into judgment day a little. Here's a couple of misconceptions. The first misconception is this, that we will only be judged on the basis of our works. So some, I would say, mistakenly believe that one day you will stand before God and he will Weigh out the balance between your good works and your bad works, and depending on how the scales tip, you'll either get into heaven or you'll go into hell, but that it all depends on your works and how you lived your life. This is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible does not teach that it's all on the basis of your works. For example, Jesus in Matthew 7 says this, "'Not everyone who says to me, "'Lord, Lord,' will enter the kingdom of heaven, "'but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven.'" Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Jesus here shocks his audience by saying many religious people will stand before God on that day and lay out their spiritual resume, all the things that they did for God. And Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. I had no relationship with you. That all who stand before God mistakenly thinking that it's on the basis of their good works that they will be entered into heaven, they'll be admitted into heaven, says they are in for a rude awakening. That it's not about what you've done, but it's about a relationship with Jesus, trusting in him for your salvation. As Paul wrote in Romans 3, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that comes by Christ Jesus. There is so much in that passage, isn't there? That he, say, he says, again, no one is going to be able to stand before God on the basis of their good works and be right with God. On the basis of good works, observing the law, he says, no one will be declared righteous. But there's good news that God has made a way to be right with him that doesn't depend upon what you've done or haven't done. It depends on faith in Jesus Christ. And he says that is good news because all have sinned. All have fallen short of God's glory. Nobody lives up to God's perfect standard. But they are justified, declared not guilty by faith in Jesus, by his grace. And so Paul could write in Ephesians 2, It is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. It's not about your good works. That is not what's going to save you on judgment day. All of you who think you can stand before God and lay out your spiritual resume... Jesus will say, I never knew you. It's never been about your good works because you can't measure up to God's perfect standard. So Jesus said this, whoever believes in the Son, actually, I think John the Baptist said this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. So again, going back to 1 Thessalonians 5, the passage we read this morning, God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. Do you know Jesus? You want to know what's on the test? It's not going to be a list of have you done this, 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 and this. It's going to be do you know him? Does he know you? Have you trusted in him for your salvation? Or are you trusting in your own good works? If you've trusted in him, then this is true of you. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter what you've done or haven't done in this life. If If you are in Christ Jesus, if you have trusted in him, then when you stand before him on that final day, that day of the Lord, and you say, I don't deserve to get in, but I trust in Jesus, It says there'll be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that's the third misconception, okay? Judgment is not a bad thing. It's not going to make you a judgmental person believing in a God of judgment. And when you stand before him, it's not going to be about your good works. It'll be about whether or not you have trusted in Jesus. But now for the fourth misconception. The fourth misconception is that we will only be judged on the basis of our faith in Jesus. What? Does that just contradict what I just said? Let me explain. The only way you are going to be in heaven, the only way you're going to be with God is by trusting in Jesus. However, when you stand before God on that day, there's more to the story. It does matter how you lived your life. It does not just matter that you trusted in Jesus. There's going to be more to judgment day. Again, 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So there is, as you listen, a sense in which there will be some judgment based on what we have done. And that is not going to be the basis of whether you go to heaven or hell, but there is some understanding that what we do in this life still matters on what are we going to be judged then. Let me go through a few things I see as I look through the Bible, the New Testament, about judgment on that day. First, whether we live for Jesus or live for ourselves. There's a great passage that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3 about that day of judgment. He says this, By the grace God has given me, I have laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ, If any man builds on that foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day, that's judgment day, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames." My understanding as I read that passage is that he says there's only one foundation and that is Jesus Christ. There's only one way to be right with God and that is by trusting in Jesus. But how you build upon that foundation with the rest of your life matters. And he uses analogies here of building materials. Precious metals like gold and silver that will withstand the fire and then things like wood and hay and straw that will be burned up. And so my understanding as I read this is that on that day, the only way that you're going to be going into heaven is if you have trusted in Jesus. But there's still judgment based on how you lived your life. And if you have built on that foundation with things that are just completely self-centered and have no spiritual significance, on that day you will stand before and they will be burned up. And you will see that you have wasted your life, given yourself to things that in the end did not matter eternally. And it says, you will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames, it says. As the fire of God's judgment burns up everything you've done with your life. So my understanding is, on that day of judgment, yes, your salvation depends upon whether or not you've trusted in Jesus. But there is still a way that we're going to be judged, and there will be, as it says at the end of this, reward. He will receive his reward. Whatever that means, we'll get into based on how you've lived your life, whether you've lived your life for Jesus or lived your life for yourself, whether you've lived to serve him and his kingdom or to serve your own kingdom. So you will be judged on how you live your life. It does matter. Secondly, what you've done with the knowledge that you have. Because let's face it, people around the world have a very different level of knowledge of God, depending on where you grew up, where you live. Some of you have more Bibles in your house than you know what to do with. Some people might never even have the Bible in their own language. Some people attend church every Sunday. Some people might not have access to a church. And so there is an element of what we have done with the knowledge we've been given. This is a very interesting passage, but let me read it. Luke 12, 47 to 48, That servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. For everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. It's odd reading this, but there's some understanding of of judgment here, right? And he says it will vary depending on what you've known. It says those who knew what the master asked and did not do it, it says will be beaten with many blows, whatever that means. And then the second group here is those who did not know and did not do, where there's a level of ignorance. It says there'll be less judgment on them. Most of you are in the camp of no excuse, right? Most of us right now are living in that camp of we have been given just about everything that we need to live. We have access to the Bible, we have access to teachers, and we have access to people who can disciple us. What have you done with the knowledge that you've been given? Thirdly, What have you done with the resources God has given you? What have you done with the resources God has given you? Jesus tells this parable in Matthew 25. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. And then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things, and I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out, and I hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown, and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers, so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him, and give it to the one who has ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, my understanding of what Jesus is saying here is that we will be judged on the basis of what we have done with the resources he's given us. Talents, money, influence. What have you done with what he has entrusted to you? Final exam, question number four. How he be treated the least of these? He goes on to tell this parable. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. And then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire to for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. It seems that Jesus is saying that evidence of our faith is seen in these things, right? It's not just that you prayed a prayer when you were seven years old, but the evidence of your faith is seen The evidence of your faith is seen in how you treated the least of these, in what you've done with the resources he's given to you, in what you've done with your life that God has given to you, the resources, the abilities, the talents, the money. On that day, the only foundation is Jesus Christ and whether you've trusted him But the evidence of that faith is going to be seen in your works. They will matter. And when you stand before him, there will be that final judgment. What have you done with your life? And there's the reference in these passages to reward and treasure in heaven, where Jesus says in Matthew 6, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. So what's the whole point of this reward thing? I mean, some of you think, well, what what does it matter? I'm in heaven, right? Why do I need to think about reward or treasure or any of that? Like, as long as I'm in heaven, I'm good. As long as I've trusted in Jesus, I'm good. Let me try to help you to think about reward in a way that hopefully will make sense. I don't want you to think about it as having a bigger mansion or having more jewels in your crown or having a house closer to the throne or anything like that. Think about it this way, try to I'll try to use some analogies to help think about what reward, heavenly reward might be like. Say you're a golfer and it's like all the hard work that you've put into your golf game so that the reward is that finally when you go out there and play you can hit the ball straight and true and enjoy the feeling that comes from seeing that ball go straight. Or you're a piano player. And all that hard work that you've put into learning how to play the piano, the reward is that one day you can play freely, anything, beautifully. Or what about if you're married? Or a friendship, all the hard work you put into working at that relationship so that one day you can enjoy the fruits of your labor and enjoy the closeness and intimacy that comes from all that hard work. Notice how I'm I'm giving you examples of rewards that are organically tied to the work you've put in. That the reward of giving yourself in service to God and delighting in him is that one day, the reward you will receive is that you will enjoy him fully forever. Or think of it this way. What if heaven were a basketball game? the greatest reward would, bo- would go to those who have disciplined themselves and given themselves to learning the game of basketball so that when they get to heaven, they can enjoy it better than anyone else. Or if heaven were an orchestra, those who dedicated themselves to learning an instrument would be able to play freely and better than anyone else. But heaven's not an orchestra and it's not a basketball game. That Heaven is a place of love. And those who are going to enjoy heaven the most and be rewarded the most are those who have given themselves to love. Given themselves to loving God and to loving others. Who've given themselves to pursuing God with their whole heart, to holiness, to living for him. They are going to be the ones who experience the greatest reward when they are with God forever. Going back to 1 Thessalonians 5, he says this, You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. It's those who live as children of the day and don't live as children of the night. Those who live seeking God and living holy lives for him. Those are the ones who are going to experience the greatest reward. When they are finally in a place where there is no more sin and no more evil and no more darkness. Where it is just light and love and God for all eternity. There's going to be a judgment day. Anyone who thinks they can stand before God on the basis of their spiritual resume, Jesus will say, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. But all who think it's just about, as long as I pray a prayer, now I can live however I please, you're mistaken. Either it shows you don't even know God, or you're just mistaken in understanding what he teaches, that on that day, What you have done matters. How you've lived matters. How you've used the resources he's given you matters. How you've treated the least of these, how you've loved others matters eternally. Live your life to love him and to love others. Remember, on that day, everyone that we love will stand before God. Remember the end of Schindler's List, looking out at the sea of people that he could have saved if he had only, you know, sold this pin or this car and he looks out and realizes how many more jews he could have saved let us not be us on that day right that we stand before god and we just in the light of eternity realize how much we've wasted on things that did not matter eternally as we watch it being burned up by the fire of god's judgment all that's going to matter is standing before him do we know jesus do our friends know jesus Again, First Thessalonians 2. What is our hope, our joy, or our crown in which we will glory in the, presence, in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? You are our glory and joy. Let that be our prayer and our, our rejoicing when we stand before God and we see those that we've had a hand in influencing towards salvation, towards eternal life. Let me close with this. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Let me pray as the worship team comes forward. Father, we know that tomorrow is not promised to anyone. We know that any day we could stand before you. And we also know that there is a heaven, there is a hell. And I pray for each person here that they would put their complete trust in Jesus for their salvation. And that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would help us to build on that foundation. Doing things that matter eternally. Using the gifts and resources and talents that you've given us to love others, to serve your kingdom. That we might enjoy heavenly reward forever. The reward that comes from enjoying you, enjoying love forever. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.